Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. I am your host, Jesse, and today, ladies and gentlemen, we are incredibly fortunate to have a returning I was going to say a returning face, but a returning voice to the podcast. If you've been following this podcast for a while, you'll know him all too well, and his presence will no doubt have been missed by you. Without further ado, I present to you Daniel Kuberak. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, man. You know what? You'd make a great hype man. A hype man? Yeah. You know, in the gym, when you go train, it's always great to have a hype man with you who's just like yelling at you. Like, you can do it. One more. All you, bro. You know, I'm convinced that half of being a pastor is just making up random stuff to inspire people, even if it doesn't mean anything. Did you have a phase where you were, like, really into inspiring quotes? Yes, I am ashamed to say that I was. I, and, and and you know what? It, it was a phase. Were you ever on Twitter posting said inspirational quotes? I was never a huge Twitter guy. Even less so now. Even less so now. <laughs> man, that is a topic for another day that, man, I, I wish that we could open that can of worms. <laughs> Yo, you're pulling me off track, though. You're pulling me off track, Mr. Kubarek. It has been almost 12 months since your sudden and dramatic departure from the science team. I say that tongue in cheek. I joined science. About a year ago, almost a year ago now, and I was excited to work with this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, gym-pumping, photographic genius called Dan Kuberic. And then I was merely moments into my stint when he announced, I'm out of here, guys. See you later. I think it's more like you, when you've realized that everything you just said is untrue, you were so disappointed that I had to run away in shame. Well, whatever the actual truth is, you left us a little while ago. You've been gallivanting around the country, presumably. I've seen some of your Insta. Not as much as you have. Not as much as you have. Well, okay, that's that's a matter for debate. But nevertheless, I want to make this about you, because I know what you're doing here. <laughs> I'm not used to being interviewed, man. Like, <laughs> Look, our last episode, Jared interviewed me, so yeah. I feel like this is only fitting. Yeah, right. Right? Okay. So tell us, man, how have you been since you departed the beautiful leafy shores, hills of Warunga, and branched off into this new venture of yours, this new career? How's it been for you? It's been, it's been great. So what I did was, yeah, I joined a video production company that's based in Sydney. And it was very different to what I'd been doing before when I was at Science. So obviously with that came like a lot of learning and the first six months were like so, so challenging because it's essentially, I was entering into this entirely new industry. Like even though I've, I'd made videos before, like I was now rubbing shoulders with people who were like working on movies. Like we, the first project we had four weeks to, to create some of the crew that came on had worked on Elvis because Elvis was shot in on the Gold Coast and to, to kind of come into that was, like very overwhelming. But the second half of the year has been a lot more smooth sailing. I like to think it's because I've learned a lot. But yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty wild ride. I've done a lot of projects for the government. 
and some of them, some of which haven't been released yet. But yeah, that's probably been the most rewarding stuff. So I have to ask, you know, you you leapt out into the darkness. You know, this has been a passion of yours for a long time, but this is the first time you're actually working in this full time as your career. So do you do you regret it? Do you are you happy that you did it? How have you how have you felt about this new transition? Yeah, I I don't regret it at all. Like it's been just like constant learning and it's just been a classic case of the more you know, the more you don't know. Like there's so much wisdom and experience to to pull from. You you have to be on your feet the whole time, like in the film and the video industry. Just really confident in every decision you make. Like it's just taught, look, taught me a lot about myself as well. You have to really come off as, as confident in everything that you do. Just some like personal growth stuff that's been very helpful. So like I don't regret making the decision at all because like I wouldn't have learned those things otherwise. It's really cool to see when people are actually doing the thing that they really love to do. And, you know, for you, filmmaking has been that for a while. And to be able to see you to do that, it is incredible. Obviously, we miss you. And I'm sure all of our listeners are, are super psyched to hear your voice again. So, unfortunately, today, we're not going to be talking about the film industry, though maybe we should talk about that one day. You wrote a brilliant article for us in the November issue of Science. And it actually is our our cover, our feature article for, for this month. Because, of course, Right now, if you're listening to this uh, episode right as it releases, we'll be in the middle of the much anticipated, much maligned, I suppose you could say, Qatar World Cup. Now, I should assume, and I, I will probably, I have to, I have to put this out there right now. For everybody listening, Jesse does not know anything about soccer or Football, as my father-in-law calls it. My father-in-law. He's, he's a great man. I don't know anything about him, but that just, that says it all. He, he will say the real football. He doesn't, he rejects any other use. I really like this guy. So, so I know nothing about football and you know quite a bit about football, presumably. Oh, okay. Since you wrote an article about it. Yeah, I did. But do you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship with the sport, how did that all start? And sort of how do you feel about the sport of football? It is interesting because a lot of people in Australia and maybe potentially New Zealand as well, the ones that really feel passionately about football usually come from migrant backgrounds. So, you know, I was raised in a household where my dad loved football. My mom obviously was neutral about it. But then like, you know, you grew up obviously watching only football on TV you only go to football games. Like I'd never been to an AFL game until I was like 21 years old. I still have never been to a rugby game. Football has just been it. Earlier on, it was you'd only see the World Cup on TV or Champions League games. I remember the old SBS, which is, you know, we used to be the rights holder for all football games in Australia. They used to show quite a bit of stuff, being able to watch their like English Premier League recaps. I remember one of my earliest childhood memories, our, our dad took us to this game in Adelaide where Manchester United, everyone would know Manchester United, their youth team came to play this tournament in Adelaide. It was super random. So we sat there on this hot Sunday and just watched these youth teams play against each other. Then later on, like I think my interest in football just kind of waned throughout my high school years. 
but then picked up around the 2014 World Cup. And I just, like that World Cup, I was watching so many games live. Like I had a group of friends from uni at, at the time as well who we would like all just stay up pulling all-nighters watching random teams play. A lot of German games as well because like I was really hardcore going for Germany that World Cup. So obviously I go for Australia. My parents directly were born in Poland. So I also go for Poland. Poland weren't at that World Cup. So then there was third choice, which was actually first choice at the time, which was Germany because a lot of my family live in Germany. My uncle lives there. My grandma lives there. And then that's a little bit confusing for people who know their war history because they're like, didn't Germany invade Poland? Like, how can you go for the enemy? Uh, gets even more confusing because my family are actually from the part of Poland that used to be Germany. A lot of Germans living there. So we are further back. We are Germans, but we are also Poles. I don't know. It's a little really confusing. A lot of my mates used to get confused about it, but that World Cup, I was really going for Germany and supporting them. And that kind of kicked things off, so to speak. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So yeah, I was studying a Bachelor of Journalism at uni at the time. And while you're studying a Bachelor of Journalism, you also want to be doing a lot of like freelance activities to build up your portfolio. So what did I do it on? Obviously, I started doing like football reporting. And I don't know how, but I got media accredited for the A-League season in 2015-16. So I was going to games as a media accredited journalist. Don't know how I got in there, but there I was going to like the press conference after the game with the coach. But well, first of all, the best thing was that you could go to every game for free, which was like awesome. And in the press box that always has, they always have food as well. You'd like rub shoulders with, you know, the, the hotshot journalists from the local newspaper and stuff. That was very cool because that season, my team, because I was living in Adelaide, that team, my team actually made it all the way to the grand final. So I was also able to kind of document that journey for the publication that I was writing for. And since then, yeah, I've just been very much closely following football. I don't really know where my allegiance is in terms of club football, in terms of what club I go for in the English Premier League or in Germany, whatever. Because does Germany have its own equivalent to the Premier League? Yeah, yeah. Most So the European, well, most of the European countries would be kind of recognized as the best leagues in the world. But they'll also be like, they'll usually have one team that just dominates so England is is rare because it doesn't, it sort of does. Like Manchester City has been the team that has the most money and therefore has been winning like a lot of titles recently. But in Germany, they've had one team, which is Bayern Munich, win the league for the last 10 years straight. Yeah. And they're the richest team. They just buy the best players and they keep winning the league. So it is a little bit easy to get cynical about the sport, which I guess is going to foreshadow what we're going to talk about, I guess, in a little bit. What's important for me in football is the competition and the intensity. And sometimes that's lacking a little bit, but with things like the world cup, it, it, ten, it ends up being a bit of an equalizer because in club football, cause there's, 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 there's club football, then there's international football in club football. You're buying each other's players and stuff. So usually the richest clubs can buy the best players and the richest clubs. It's like a monopoly. They just sit at the top, like Bayern Munich the last 10 years, just sitting at the top of the league, PSG in France as well sitting at the top for like years and years and years in a row. But in international football, you can't buy plays, you know, whatever, whoever was born in your, in your country and swears allegiance to that country, that's who you've got to deal with. So it's illegal for a South African to go and play for Brazil, for instance. 
there are rules. Like, you can do it. I think there's, like, citizenship rules. You have to move and live there for, like, five to, to ten years and then be a citizen. Well, I think you have to be a citizen for, for at least five years. So, it's it's a little bit too much of a commitment for most people. Like, it's not very practical. Yeah, but it has been done. But, yeah, so that's why, that's why international football is interesting. That's why there's so much hype around the World Cup because it's not like Bayern Munich are going to win this year like they always do. It's like, you know... It's just like with the players that you get, also you need to get a really good coach who needs to be able to work with what he's got. He can't just buy a player from somewhere else. In theory, it's more apples versus apples rather than apples versus bananas or whatever. pretty much. So when it comes to the international scene and all that sort of stuff, has there been a particular team that has dominated or has it just been a matter of who the players are each year, because the, the the World Cup only comes around every five years. It's four years, yeah. So yeah, in a sense, France was really the the big dominant team recently. They won the last World Cup, and they were kind of expected to win the last Euros, which they didn't, which was surprising. But then here, here's the thing about the great equalizer, right? Like Italy won the Euros, which is just European teams playing against each other. That was held last year supposed to be held in 2020 but got moved and then italy italy won that tournament and so would theoretically be the hot form team but they failed to qualify for this world cup so and that's that's why it's so dynamic and interesting but france france would be kind of they've just been up there for the last you know in every major tournament this time around it's probably going to be a changing of the guard they've got so many players that are injured like literally all their best players are injured and they're, as we're recording this in two days time, they're going to be playing Australia. And it's just so funny because like every Australian news media outlet is like, we've got a chance guys. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not going to say anything because like this is going to be out after that game. <laughs> we, we literally before we were recording, we're like, should we make predictions? Like <laughs> Daniel, is yeah, he like, gonna rub his oracle, his his crystal ball? <laughs> Everything that we say could potentially be just completely wrong as soon as this episode comes out. Yeah. But I would really like to Yeah, I'd be happy to take that. I will admit, I think one of the reasons why I haven't been super interested in football, even from an early age, was at the very beginning of when I was getting interested in sport, like I'm, I'm a big cricket guy. I've always been a big cricket guy, but the Socceroos have always been kind of like a trash team. At least that's been the, that's been the perception to me that they've, they've never been good enough. And it's just kind of like, yes, we can occasionally beat the All Blacks at rugby. And yes, there was an era where we were absolutely dominant in cricket. Maybe not so much anymore, although, you know, things have been a little bit better recently, but. It seemed like always soccer, sorry, football. It seemed that football was always the, the sport that we just couldn't get our heads around as a country. I don't know why. It, what's your assessment of the Australian like scene in football? It's a big topic. So essentially what happened was in 2006, Australia had a lot of players playing for European clubs and European leagues are a different level, you know? The players have to be super fit. You have to be very good at what you do in order to be, in order to stay where you are. So we had a lot of players over there. And in Australia, Australia didn't really have like a a formal 
league in the lead up to that. It was like a semi-professional league called the NSL. An actual professional league was just starting, but there wasn't any players from that, you know, the domestic league that were in that group. And that group made it to the round of 16. So they made it out of the group and then they versus Italy and they lost because of a controversial penalty. So that like that's viewed as the golden generation. That's the best we've ever done. We made it out of the group and everything since then hasn't been as great. And look, there could be a, a majority of reasons. So probably a big one is that like we don't have any as many players playing in those European big leagues anymore. This World Cup that's coming up, Australia's squad is 17 players from the, the domestic league. We don't have a single player who's playing in the English Premier League. We don't have any players in the German League, which is probably one of the big three best leagues in Europe, in the world. We don't have anyone there. So what I'm hearing is that in order for an Australian, or maybe like for anybody, to hack it at an international level, it really is a good idea for them to have made it and done a good job in a European League. Yeah, the players really need to be playing at the highest level. So that's why, you know, when we come up against France and their players are all playing in the biggest leagues, you know, there's going to be a quality difference. So we, you know, potentially don't stand as much of a chance this World Cup. But who knows? Like, there's also the Aussies. There's like, there's other factors in there as well. Like, when, as Australians, we pride ourselves on being the underdogs, right? And that, I think that mentality really does add something. There was a friendly game recently where Barcelona came to Australia to play against the A-League All-Stars, which is the best A-League players all smooshed together into this makeshift team. And it's always a a bit hilarious when that happens because then usually the the All-Stars get absolutely smashed by a said club from Europe. But our guys played really well. They completely outplayed Barcelona. And this was a team that had just been put together by like like two weeks before that. And I think that's because like the the hunger and the appetite to be able to bring it up against the best is there amongst Australians. And who knows what we'll be able to achieve if that desire is there enough. But yeah, in a technical sense, yeah, Australia has generally lagged behind. But who knows? Like there might be, it's a clean slate currently as far as I'm concerned for this World Cup and we'll see what happens. Well, you know, the one of the things that I think is a real strength of Australia and of New Zealand as well, for that matter, is that multiculturalism is a strong value in, in our countries. You know, different people from different nations coming together and, and sharing the best of their cultures and the best of what they have to offer. And maybe, maybe there's a, a cultural shift that has to happen in the South Pacific, in Australia and New Zealand for different cultures to come in to influence you know, the way that we play certain sports. So maybe in the future, in our, you know, kids' lifetimes, it will have shifted to a point where maybe Australia will become a competitive force in the international scene. Who knows? Yeah, I really like that about Australia in that we do have, like, a lot of multiculturalism. Like, there are some Sudanese boys, I'm pretty sure they're Sudanese, who play for Australia, some of them who are refugees, and they're going to be potentially leading the line against France in, in two days time. That's really cool. Like one of them is actually from Adelaide. His name's Awer Mobile. He was one of the guys that scored a penalty that got us past Peru and yeah, into this world cup against all odds. I don't know. 
yeah, how they managed to do it. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us, I guess, to this World Cup. Yeah. If you've turned on the news recently, then you'll have seen many, many things from the ban on alcohol to then Budweiser kicking up a stink and then them U-turning two days later on that ban to there was a clip that was circulating Reddit when the first well, the, like it first started of that Danish journalist trying to like the these these guys just coming up and threatening to smash his camera for the for the goal of reporting the news. And and in your article you talk about the humanitarian angle, which is something that I feel like has been mentioned, but it's in some ways been brushed aside in favor of other things as the news coverage of this event has been has been going on. How have you felt? You wrote this, I want to say, two, three months ago now. So how have you been processing that? So it's it hasn't been just processing it over the last few months. It's been over the last 12 years. So pretty much what happened is like the Olympics, that the tournament hosts for a given World Cup are determined like many, like up to a decade or more prior, right? So it was 2010 and there was a, a few countries that were looking to host the 2022 World Cup. One of them was Australia. We put a lot of, like, Australia put a lot of money into this bid. I think it was around $45.6 million. And where that money went exactly is, is a good question. But part of it was to make this video that had like Hugh Jackman in it. It had Julia Gillard because she was the prime minister at the time and stuff. What was embarrassing was that our $45.6 million in the FIFA. So FIFA is the organizational body for everything football around the world. They organize the world cups. They keep all these confederations in line, like the European confederation. We're part of the Asian confederation. So in their process, our $45.6 million that we invested into trying to get the World Cup led to one vote out of like 30 or something. Yeah, which was a massive bummer. This is like their committee that votes on who yeah. gets to go there. Yeah, and it came out very shortly after that. So Qatar obviously won the most votes. And at the, at the time, it was already confusing why this was the case because these tournaments usually get played in what is Australian winter, what is summer in the country that's hosting it. But Qatar is in the middle of the desert. So it's very hot. So it was a little bit confusing about what was going to happen there. Qatar didn't really have a big footballing pedigree. But then information started coming out that also there was a lot of corruption in in how, you know, the people that were voting for them to be able to host the World Cup, you know, were, were bought off and stuff. But we've like this stuff kept coming out over the years after that. You know, in 2015, there was a huge investigation to FIFA. People were arrested over corruption charges. And there was talk about Qatar losing the World Cup rights because of this whole thing, because it was more and more clear that they had won it through corruption. But there's never been a sustained, a big enough sustained push to strip them of their rights. And by that stage, there was a lot of money invested into it as well. And so, like, this stuff has just been coming out slowly and slowly and slowly. It also, we started finding out information about how many people that were migrant workers were dying, especially between, like, 2015 and now. We started finding out that there was a lot of migrant workers who were who were being brought in and were dying in the extreme conditions. There wasn't a lot of safety for them. They were being offered minimum wages and stuff. But the thing is, like, this information never came in one big hit enough for everybody to jump on like the one bandwagon and 
try and push to boycott or cancel the tournament or have it, you know, moved somewhere else. And by this stage, also billions of dollars have been invested. This is going to be the most expensive World Cup ever to be hosted. It's going to cost, by the end of it, $220 billion to, to build all the stadiums, to, you know, pay people. Okay. Here's, here's a, here's just an example of how much things cost, right? So Qatar have had very negative, like PR because of this, all this stuff. So what do you do then? They have taken on David Beckham as a, as an ambassador for the tournament. And I only just found this out right before this interview, but he's been paid $227 million to be the ambassador for this World Cup. What? To walk around and take photos and to tell everybody that Qatar is a great country? Yep. There's literally a video, there's, there's videos of him like experiencing the culture and stuff. Very cynically, it's, it's sort of, it comes across as a, a nice PR exercise to try and- Very contrived. Yeah. Which is, which is very sad. There are other people that are pushing for, to boycott the World Cup. But that ultimately ends up being the question, like, should the World Cup be boycotted? The French goalkeeper, I think it was, his name is Hugo Lloris, had some very interesting stuff to say about the World Cup. One of them was, like, now is not the time to be getting really upset about it. We should have been getting upset about it 12 years ago when they were awarded the rights. Like, all this stuff could have potentially been seen from a massive distance. And yet, at the time, it was just... It was just being allowed to happen. And he's like, as a player now, is now's not our time to, to be making social statements. We need to focus on our job, which is to go out and play and, and beat the other team. We can't be focusing on other things like the fact that we shouldn't really be here. I've got friends on, on both sides of the spectrum here. Some, some of them don't want to watch this World Cup. Others of them are, are like, who cares if, I've literally had a friend tell me who, who cares if, you know, people died. It's the World Cup. Like people died doing many things. And I don't really have an answer. Like I, I will watch Australia's games. I'll watch Poland's games, but I don't think, I don't know if I'll feel excited about the fact that it's being hosted in Qatar. I don't know if I'll feel not guilty. I'll definitely feel a sense of guilt for the fact that. This is even happening. It's, it's, it's hard to even look at like the massive stadium that they've built for me as just watching the news, knowing that I could look anywhere on that stadium and know that somebody probably died in that spot or in that spot. And it was, it was six and a half thousand people all up that died. So it's not just because accidents do happen on construction sites, but this is more than just. You know, it's not, it's not like willful. We're going to bring all these people here to kill them. It's we're going to bring all these people here to do a job for what is essentially slave labor plus a few bucks and not really care too much if they do get injured or killed in the process. Yeah. So, so what I've learned in since is that it, this is part of the, the Khalifa system that's common in potentially some Middle Eastern countries where it's like a sponsorship system to get my migrant workers in but it's been it's been very easily abused in this case so if, for example they got people from you know third world situations in india bangladesh pakistan and stuff to come in these people want to feed their families they're, they're getting offered a job to work in qatar it offers security for their families they arrive at the airport their passports are taken away the contract that they'd signed before they left 
is removed in case of a different contract, which they're going to pay, get paid much less. So then they, they, but they have to do it because there's, there's no backing out now. They don't have a passport. They're in a, you know, impoverished situation. So they have to provide for their family. And then they get shoved into these living quarters where it's like 10 to 20 people in a tiny cubicle, barely working toilet, almost no food, very bad. And then working on these stadiums in extreme heat all year round so that this project gets delivered. And that's, that's why so many people died. That's why there's still so many people who are suffering as a result of what this World Cup has brought about. Yeah. And I was looking at some stats as well in events like this. The, it's not just the migrant workers that are abused when these big events happening, cases of human trafficking, when people are coming in from different nations mm-hmm. and they are wanting to unwind. Oftentimes they'll go to, well, I mean, strip clubs. They'll go to brothels, things like that. And I'm not exactly sure how it works in Qatar because I haven't seen. But even in a country like this where those sorts of things are almost certainly illegal, it still happens. Mm. I actually hadn't heard about that one. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It, 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 it not, doesn't just happen here. It happens in countries like America. Yeah. When we talking about the Super Bowl, there's, it's all the same. And that, that kind of, that's the question that, that you have to ask yourself is it's, this is not just one isolated case of, of, you know, slave labor, potentially migrant workers dying, corruption at the one event. It's, it's a very common feature of when money gets involved everywhere around the planet. There's abuse. There's people that get taken advantage of. So the question is then, is this the hill that you want to take a stand on? And that's the question that I've been asking myself because, you know, when you walk through the shops and somebody from a charity, from an NGO asks you if you want to sponsor a child, you could be stopping at every single one of those. It's impossible to be able to contribute to every social cause, even though that is the just thing. And more deeper than that is the fact that as humans, we, we don't accept that Everything we have here, like the fact that you and I are just talking is benefiting, like we are privileged, we are benefiting from someone's suffering potentially. And this is, this is what we talked about around the time that I was writing this article. I was talking about this with my friends, like the fact that, you know, our phones are being made, someone's being exploited in the making of those phones and our, the food we get, somebody's not being paid enough. Like there are so many unfair things. Like even, even the clothes we wear, right? The Baptist World Aid Ethical Fashion Guide has, tells you what kind of clothing manufacturers, what their record is. And most of them are like, have a pretty shocking record of like exploitation and, you know, factory workers in a third world country having to, to produce that. However, the one thing I do have going for me is that the one clothing brand that I, I buy from, and I found this out later, has actually an A minus. So I felt very, very good about that i was like yeah yeah so that's that's my one like guilt-free thing but yeah there are so many things we don't consider and so the question is what then should we boycott and in the case of this world cup like i mentioned there has never there's never been that one big sustained push to to create 
social change in the case of this World Cup because when information comes in, people become used to it over time. It becomes less shocking. And then people, when it's less shocking and it, people become accustomed to it, then they're less likely to do something about it. It's like, do you remember Joseph Coney? Very interesting social justice campaign that should be analyzed because this video came out shocking. People viewed it. You know, I found out about it by word of mouth. I had to go watch it because at least five people told me to go watch it. And everybody got so emotionally invested in this thing. And not only that, but then the fact that they had a call to action. Let's go paint the street. Let's make Joseph Coney famous. Let's slap his, you know, these posters across everywhere in every city. Unfortunately, that campaign derailed because of like personal issues within that organization. But that's a great, that's a great example of how to hype up society, I guess, to, to a social cause. But this, the World Cup has never had that. A lot of societal issues don't have that unless there is one big dramatic event. So it's quite interesting that we're now here about to watch the World Cup and a lot of people will be okay with it despite what we know. Yeah. I, I think there comes a certain point where you, be, you, you endure so much suffering and pain. And even if you're not experiencing it yourself, as you're saying, you just see it over and over again that you become desensitized to it. And I think a lot of people's response is like your friend. Who said, I just don't care, you know, it, it almost, it's, it's harder. It's harder. It's obviously, it's harder to care. It's a lot easier just to say, I don't care because then at least you don't have to put yourself through the emotional turmoil of thinking about all the terrible things that have happened with the knowledge that you can't actually do anything about it. Mm. There's also another aspect to it, which like you, you already touched on earlier about you know, let's say alcohol being banned. Another one is, um, so it's been quite well documented about how homosexuality is illegal in Qatar, right? Oh, yes. This, yes, this is huge. Yeah. So some of the European clubs are now, they were going to wear this armband with like the rainbow saying one love and Qatar itself had, they declared that they were going to be okay with homosexuals being allowed in, into the event. But then, it, then there was this big sort of change where, like, it, it, it's been banned in the last few days because it's a, a political thing, right? Whereas there's an argument that it's a, a human rights thing. And so there's this argument between some people saying, let's not politicize the game. Let's not make social statements. Like, let's not, like Denmark, they wanted to change their, their jersey color in opposition to the amount of migrant workers that died. And it was banned because it's a, a political statement, but they would argue that that's a human rights statement. So what is the difference between a human rights stand and a political stand? And that's kind of like been this debate that I've seen, not that has ever been addressed, but it's kind of been like the defining of the two is, has been raging on. I, I, I do feel that the word political to say something is political, at least in recent memory and maybe i'm just too young to remember but it does feel like to say something is political is just a translation for you're saying something about me that i don't like hmm. it just that just that seems what it like what it is yeah well political is anything that's that's contentious that people don't want to deal with so it's really been it's been pretty interesting having that come into come into there as well because 
Like, for example, this morning we had Qatar. So the, the host nation always plays the first game. So they played against Ecuador and the captain for Qatar wore a Palestinian armband. And again, the debate comes out about politicizing the sport. And yet, like some people, you know, wow, he's, he's made a stand on that issue. And other people are like, just keep, keep, stop, keep football to like, People kicking a ball around a grassy field. It goes both ways then. It's not just one side saying, hey, don't make it political and the other side going, no, we must, we must say things. It it definitely goes both ways. Yeah. And I've never seen or watched a World Cup unfold that hasn't had these many, Mm. I don't want to say political issues because I'm literally then committing this sin that (laughs) just criticized that has had this much contention around issues or has had issues brought to the fore by various entities. There's even something about like the beer, like there's no, there's no beer allowed at the world cup anymore. This morning as, as the Qatar was playing Ecuador, all the Ecuadorian fans started seeing, we want the beer. I think that's going to be a theme of this world cup. It's just going to be a lot of discussion, but then there's, there's also another side to this, which is should the West really be bringing in Western values into Qatar and expecting that Qatar should be loving and accepting like the West would expect that Qatar would, you know. Isn't that interesting? Because there is a certain argument there that would suggest that it's another form of, I don't know, colonization, mm. potentially. I mean, that's definitely become a bit of a buzzword recently. So, like, the again, going back to the French captain, Hugo Lloris, the goalkeeper who who mentioned about how he wants to stay focused on the tournament, he also doesn't want to wear the rainbow armband because he said he wants to respect the, com- the country that he's about to head into in the same way that he would expect that they would respect his country's values when they come into France. So that's also an interesting take, and I don't really have an answer for, for that stuff, but it's very interesting to mull over. It is interesting to mull over. I think the thing that you brought out for me in the article, at least as you were getting to the end there, was the concept of truth-telling. And I know that that idea of telling the truth has been a very muddled thing recently, but you reference the Apostle Paul as he is writing to the Roman church where he talks about, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Peter backs that up. You mentioned First Peter 2 verse 16 saying that, you know, we have a responsibility as, as people of faith, you know, and if, you know, the people, if you're watch, if you're listening to this and you're not a person of faith, then this may land a little differently for you, but you talk about there's this onus on us as people of faith to speak truth and to maybe maybe to use an Aussie idiom to call a spade a spade in in the midst of this. There is a certain part of me that goes, well, telling truth might be the truth, but is it useful? And I think the cynical part of me, uh, hearing what you've heard, or what you, what you've been telling me about the last 10 years of the fact that nobody's stood up and said, actually, no, we're not going to do this in Qatar because that's a terrible idea. And there are going to be so many human rights violations and who knows how this is all going to go. 
the fact that people have been reporting on the truth for so long and yet nothing has happened. There's, there's a cynical part of me that goes, well, what's the point? How, how, how would, how would you think and, and process that? Well, that's a great question. And then it, then it really comes down to personal choice. Like what hill do you want to make a stand on? For someone who feels very passionately about football, but feels more passionately about the people whose lives were negatively impacted by, let's say, this World Cup, then boycotting this World Cup would be a great idea. Like, for example, Germany's captain from 2014 when they won the World Cup, Philipp Lahm, is boycotting the World Cup because it, it, it defies his conscience. But like I mentioned, all the, all the privilege and all the, the benefit we have from somebody else's misfortune, which one of those will, would we boycott? And like what personally impacts us enough to, to sort of boycott or change our mind about something. And that's, that's kind of the, the debate between morals and ethics. Like, your morals are, are defying, if in a, in a kind of a civil sense, every country has laws, right? So like to defy a law is immoral. Like you've broken a law, you're a criminal. And then also there's, there's another, another layer to that. A lot of often countries laws are based in something which I believe to be like the basis of those things at times or most of the time, which is the Ten Commandments, so essentially the laws that God has given for us to abide by back, you know, millennia ago, many millennia. Most most of Western civilization can still stem some of their lawmaking around the principles of, hey, maybe don't murder your neighbor. Yeah. That's probably a good idea. Don't steal from them. The great interpretation is that all 10 of those are, are based in love and respect, which is like... I think anybody who's listening to the would to this would agree a, a very you know fundamental and and honorable causes to get behind whether you whether you believe in God or not you know I think that's something we can all agree on yeah exactly so the so morals I, I think are a bit less ambiguous than ethics because ethics is like do you want to be mates with a guy that killed someone do you want to be mates with someone who do you want to support someone who has been bribed or is corrupt. Do you want to support that person who's had, you know, allegations of sexual misconduct put against them? That's ethics. And it, that's far harder to define what one should do in those cases. Oftentimes what we do end up doing is, is based on experience, right? Our personal. So if you have a, a friend who's been accused of something, you will say, I know him personally. He would never do that. Like, this could be a false allegation made against him. I've been, I've been able to judge his character for myself. So that's how you make ethical decisions. And I guess in the case of like things, bad things that happen in the world, we usually use our experience to, to judge what we would do. So for example, if we knew personally a person who died as a migrant worker in the World Cup, I can guarantee you right now we wouldn't be watching any of these games. As sad as it is, we we wouldn't slash we shouldn't, you know? And yet here we are somewhat okay with it because it hasn't personally affected us. Those so much. are those are numbers and stats rather than a real living person that we know and who had dreams and hopes and 
we laughed with and we joked with and we shared a tear with, you know, that, that they're, they're not a real person, even though they are real people. And we know that. Yeah. It's so sad that in this modern world, number figures, they're, they're what causes shock, but not personal shock. Like it's, it's always short lived. Just, you know, looking at the documentary, the, the social dilemma again, it had, very short term impact, even though it presented some shocking details, like stuff like that. When you, when you're presented with, with information that doesn't fully affect you personally, then it never, it often doesn't stick as much. There's a, there's a degree of separation, I think. Yeah, that's right. Which is, which is very sad. Like we see numbers on a screen. We see deaths from, you know, shootings in America. And if their numbers sometimes this is like horrible, but if the numbers aren't as high as last time, then we almost kind of desensitized to it, doesn't get as much news coverage and stuff like that. This is the the reality of, of the very sad world that we live in. And what I really want to do, like as much as I, I'm, you know, debating on, on the ethics of this World Cup, what I really want this article to kind of achieve is that everyone opens their eyes to to the injustice in the world and we don't turn a blind eye to things that just the the act alone of going through the details and the facts of why something like Qatar hosting the World Cup and all the people that suffered because of it is so unfair for us to consider this with with everything so that we can make better decisions but then also as humans we have we have limited time like Jesse you don't have time to go home every day and read up about everything ever so that's why it's just a matter of like in any time you want to, it's like, it's really critical thinking. You know, anytime you want to jump on, on jump onto a, a cause or jump onto, to support something, just to do your research and think it through and see whether it aligns with y- your morals. And oftentimes you'll find that it won't because there's so much hurt and so much pain in this world. But at least you will have done that process. And who knows? Maybe some stage there'll be something that you'll change your mind on and as a result of that it might cause some good in the world some change for the positive yeah i think the reality is even though most of us probably in this moment feel a little bit powerless to change any of these things that have happened right now in qatar the reality is at some point in your life you will face a decision that might impact the lives of people more people than just you and I think that it's important for us to process where do my moral values align and am I willing to step forward to put my money where my mouth is? Because it might not happen today, it might not happen tomorrow, but you might one day be put in a situation that tests your moral core. And it's at that point when you're going to realize, we're going to realize what you really stand for and whether this is all fluff or if it's real. Yeah. It's it, maybe it's like, it's considering what your moral values are whenever you make an ethical decision rather than, because when you make an ethical decision on its own, it's very easy to just do so ignorantly. But when you do so in consideration of what if this personally affected me, what if I was related to someone who was hurt by this and this and this, and would that change my decision in the way I'm making it right now? Maybe that would be a key factor in 
us being a bit more clear with what kind of logical decision we make. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. We are just about out of time. Dan, is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd say if you have time and if this is something you're interested in to understand why, because it, like it's so hard to, to really condense this complex issue into, you know, an hour long podcast and people can do their own reading, but a good starting point is potentially this new Netflix series called FIFA Uncovered, which really explains why it got to this point because it really explains what happens when, when a sport becomes a business and what happens then why things become corrupt, why why poor decisions are made. That'll probably explain some of it. But also, like, I've sounded kind of overly cynical throughout this podcast. And that's, that's tr- truth because it's easy to be when you're dealing with, you know, the issues of s- people being hurt on a large scale. But also that we, we do have a, a bright future to look forward to as, as Christians, Christians believe that there is the coming return of our loving savior, Jesus, which will wipe away all tears and will end all suffering. Right. And that's something great to look forward to. And obviously, like, if you want to read up about how that was made possible, then a great place to start is, is the story of Jesus, you know, starting in the book of Matthew in the Bible, but also like coming back to that question, you had earlier about whether anything is of any con- consequence like on earth. Is there any point changing anything? I think just to not remain ignorant and also we have a duty to like, if you believe in, in the Christian point of view that, you know, Jesus is coming again, we are charged to be like Jesus and Jesus was, you know, caring for the poor. He helped those in need. He healed the sick. That's our call on this earth while we're here to do that for other people. Now, that may not mean turning off your TV when the World Cup is on. That may mean, you know, maybe you do have a calling to sponsor a child. Maybe, you know, you have a few dollars that you could spare for a charity that you know is doing great work. Maybe means volunteering, maybe means picking up rubbish by the beach. You know what I mean? That Those are worthy causes that one's time could and should be spent on because someone is going to benefit from them. So to consider those is, is a worthy thing. I think. I think those are, that's, that's some wise words, Dan. Thank you for um, sharing with us and uh, some of your expertise and passion for the world game. That's right. And uh, this honestly, very morally ambiguous and complex topic. It's been really a joy to process this with you. So thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Sorry uh, if I confused anyone, but it's it's good to be back, and it's it's so it makes me feel for yourself. Very you can proud do so by checking to see out the, the November amazing issue of Science Magazine. Commanding that insightfultimes.org.au like is where you want right, to go to read his article, to subscribe, to do all that good like stuff. It. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much. We'll uh, hopefully see you very soon with another brilliant article. Can't wait for whatever is next. Appreciate it. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au.